On this explosive episode of StarPod Log, we consider the contents of StarLog magazine from 1982 in issues 61 and 62. Both video game player of the century Billy Mitchell and Metal Jesus Rocks consider the breakthrough movie Tron. Lou, Rich, and Max reminisce on the sequel to Mad Max, The Road Warrior. Keith Bradbury considers the latest star of Doctor Who, Peter Davidson. Bert Bruce waxes on the beautiful Sandal Bergman. Tabletop J and Captain Link fill us in on the board games of 1982. Main Man Jamie discusses the awesome video games of 1982. And more on this episode of Star Pod Log. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hoorah, tally ho. Hey cutie pie. Hey puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and retro pop culture. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we leave the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, StarPod Trek. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows? We might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app, And look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. We look forward to setting up a table at Free Comic Book Day. That is Saturday, May 6th, all around the United States. Comic book shops will be giving away free comics and celebrating this unique medium. In fact, we will have a table set up at the Great Escape in Nashville, Tennessee. So if you're in the area, stop by and see us. Matrothamcon is May 12th through 14th. We'll have a table set up there. The theme this year for Matrothamcon is Return to the 90s. How many awesome sci-fi and fantasy shows were produced in the 90s? Oh, there were a lot. We're looking forward to this con. Kevin Sorbo from Hercules is going to be there. He's always great to see, and I loved that show. The Ultimate Star Wars Convention is happening May 26th through 28th. No, we're not talking about celebration. What are we talking about, cutie pie? ICCC. How would you describe the Imperial Commissary Collectors Convention that's being held in Tennessee? It's a huge Star Wars convention. It's got a lot of stuff going on every year. And as usual, we will be presenting some amazing panels at DragonCon in Atlanta, Georgia on Labor Day weekend. I'm looking forward to getting some new costumes ready. And on October 27th through 29th, Music City Multicon is being held just outside of Nashville. If you're into video games, pinball, comic books, cosplay... This is turning out to be one of our favorite conventions that's happening in the area. So come see us there. 
Starlog Magazine, issue number 61, cover date, August 1982. Communications, letters to Starlog Magazine. On the Kisser. From K. Shepard Tibbetts in Fort Washington, Maryland. When 1,600 UCLA students participated in a recent survey and named the six greatest screen kisses of all time, two of them, count them, two, were from genre movies, the films and parties involved, Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder in Superman Two, and Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher in The Empire Strikes Back. So who says science fiction has no mainstream appeal? I have to say... This magazine came out 40 years ago, and those are probably my top two cinematic kisses to this point. Of course. I, I mean, who can forget? You know, they're both classic movies, and classic characters, and classic kisses. Log Entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction. Summer Sci-Fi Reading. For those who can't get enough of this summer's blockbuster lineup of science fiction and horror films, here's an easy solution. Why not take them home with you? I love movie adaptions. To this day, I collect movie adaptions, but even when I was younger, I always thought it was fascinating to read the book and watch the movie, because the book would add in details that the movie didn't have. And I didn't realize it, but the fact that most of the time, books are based on original scripts, ones that haven't gone through any adjustments, so the movie version would be a little bit different. I always liked reading the novelizations. Uh, you, you get more out of it. You get more insight into the characters, and it explains things that, that, like, that you never really thought needed explaining. So the list of summer sci-fi reading here, the Creepshow comic book adaption, which I definitely remember this kid in my brother's class named Byron Shakespeare. He had it. And it was amazing. Artwork by Bernie Wrightson. I actually remember this teacher getting mad that we were looking at a comic that was just so incredibly violent. You knew someone whose last name was Shakespeare? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Real kid. <laughs> okay. And uh, this teacher, like, man, I'm trying to think of her name. It was, it was Miss Romanovsky. Boy, she was a... She was just a pain. I think all my teachers throughout my life were a pain some way, one or another. But boy, I mean, what a thing to just be angry about. Hey, we're just kids having fun watching monsters coming out of boxes and devouring people. No harm in that. Another Alan Dean Foster's novelization of John Carpenter's The Thing. And this is a curiosity because we know that The Thing was based on John W. Campbell's original story, Who Goes There? But this novelization was a cross between that original story and Bill Lancaster's screenplay. So that's pretty interesting. Also, the Howling novelization came out, Cat People novelization, the prose version of Swamp Thing by Len Wein and David Houston, Vonda McIntyre offered up her second Star Trek novel, The Adaption of the Wrath of Khan. Also, Elsprog DeCamp, Lynn Carter, and Catherine Cook DeCamp produced Conan the Barbarian. Phil K. Dix do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, 
was reissued to tie in with Blade Runner. Also, the pen version of E.T. I mean, there were a lot. The reason being, there were a lot of movies in 1982 that needed adaptions. So if you wanted to read these, I mean, they they were all cool. That that actually, like, you would have spent a lot of time if you read all of those. I remember getting the E.T. novelization at a Scholastic Book Fair. Had a gold cover on it. Man, I was so into E.T., and I loved the novelization. And the article mentions, on final note, John Gardner's first James Bond novel, License Renewed, was recently issued in paperback, just as his second Bond book for special services is being issued in hardcover. So they actually take a tally. If you were to buy all the books that were listed in this article, it would come out to be $41.55. That's all? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the books were $3 each for the most part. And I have to say, John Carter, that is my favorite James Bond novelist. I love License Renewed and the series that came out afterwards. So this this was a new era for Bond in books as well. NPR strikes with Empire in 83. National Public Radio, which blazed the trails across the country with its 13-part Star Wars series last year, is striking again. This time, NPR, in association with KUSC-FM in Los Angeles, has joined forces with Lucasfilm Limited for a drama series based on The Empire Strikes Back. No, I, I thought this dramatization was fantastic. I never heard about it as a kid, and if I knew about it, I would have listened to it. Were you aware of this even going on? No, I wasn't. Even though it was a log entry here, many of our age group have never heard of this, which is such a curiosity. But we end up hearing it on CD, and right now it's available free to listen to on YouTube. What I love about it is they brought back original actors. Excellent job, this partnership between Lucasfilm and National Public Radio. I remember the days... The days of toy collectors. In this maelstrom of decay, ordinary men were battered and smashed. Men like Max. Max Overnighter. A burnt-out, desolate man. A man haunted by the demons of his mass past. A man who wandered out into the wasteland, looking for obscure Batman collectibles. And in that blighted place, he learned to live again. I also remember another man, a man in a, a tracksuit top and a, and a jockstrap bottom with a baseball hat, losing his hair. His name was Lou, the Lord Lou Humongous, he called himself. I have a motorcycle with a dude on the He wasn't back. humongous at all. And then there was the doctor. You should the have done this with a hockey mask. Where's your hockey mask? Do you have a hockey mask you could have put on for this one? I know everybody can see it, but we should run the video later with a hockey mask. That would have been awesome. You come uh, out like shirtless. Shoulder pads with some spikes on it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. As you can guess from my steel helmet with a spike. Action, we're going to be covering the Road Warrior. This one's this one's very exciting. I'm just going to say this and we'll let you guys jump into it because I can tell everybody's chomp at the bit, but I just want to say it's exciting because last night I happened to be watching this incredibly horrible film called Alibaba and the Seven Saracens. It's a really bad 1964 
cheesy film. And when we read this article, I realized that the guy who produced it, Samuel Z. Arkoff, the same guy that did uh, The Road Warrior, also did uh, this Alibaba and the Seven Saracens. But I guess you had to start somewhere. Just, just a little coincidence there. But I'll leave that over to you guys. Take it away. Well, yeah, the American International Pictures released Mad Max in theaters in 79. And they talk about at the beginning of this article that uh, it was a massive hit everywhere else except the United States. And I don't know if that's because, number one, they dubbed the movie into English, even though all the actors were speaking English, just with Australian accents. But it was the the biggest top grossing Australian movie ever. And it, it it made... Boku dollars worldwide except the US. But I guess there was enough faith in it from Warner Brothers that they were like, all right, we'll finance a sequel. You you know, you you've proven you can do it and and so hence the Road Warrior. And I, I think this article focuses mainly on interviews with uh Byron Kennedy, the uh producer, and George Miller, the director of the Road Warrior. And again, this is one of those articles prior to the movie itself coming out where they sort of discuss their their influences around the film and, and what the film itself is about. They should have left the damn Australian in it. They should have just left it that way. You know? Yeah, well, it's funny. It's it's, yeah. it's Mel Gibson with an Australian accent, right? Before he, he sort you of never see it. that again. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> that was a one shot deal back in the day. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Oi, oi, oi. That was that was a, you know it was a great movie. I you know I mean you can totally get why it would be such a big hit in Australia. I mean it was a great movie. It was a uh, that kind of post-apocalyptic type of a feel again, you know, kind of a totally different look at what a future might would be. And the fact that so much of it was shot in Australia and so many, you know, the Australian actors and uh, something where I just was noting here that, uh, I mean, even, even the music was done by a guy by the name of Brian May. And when I first saw that, I'm like, Brian May from Queen. And I'm like, no, not the guy from Queen. But it's uh, you know he was a he was a mu- musician um, composer uh, Australian actually from a place called Adelaide in Adelaide in South Australia, a place where a good friend of ours is also from, who happens to also be a musician. So g'day fella, yeah. g'day, g'day fella. That's that's let's not go so Danny G, if you listen to this one, hey, Danny Gates. He's he's an acquaintance. He's someone that that we uh, we randomly talk to on the internet. But, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, randomly. Uh, I did as not in know till daily. Yeah, I did not know until this <laughs> moment that they, it was not Brian May from Queen because I have had the soundtrack record since the eighties. I bought it. I'm a big soundtrack. I've always loved movie soundtracks. I had it, and I thought that I knew something that nobody else knew. I'm like. Ooh, Brian How May from Queen that? did the music for Road Warrior. And Max, you have just shattered the illusion for me. <laughs> I'm sorry, sir. But, yep, it, it, yep. as a matter of fact, you know, I was looking at it because, you know, I, I didn't have – I don't have the soundtrack, and I didn't know, but I was – I was looking at it, you know, and one of the things when I'm when I'm looking at, you know, a lot of, a lot of these and, um, and probably movies, a lot of movies, I mean, going back to – old the old black and whites you know the movie soundtracks or dracula or you know when they added the soundtrack and you know so yeah. to whatever whatever movie it is there's so much where that um that musical score adds the ambiance adds that takes you in an, an emotional place so i start i start looking at some of this because i remember you know being really into like bands like tangerine dream that did a ton of 
soundtracks, you know, for movies in the 70s and 80s and stuff. So I, when I saw, you know, I happened to look down, you know, well, who, who did this music? And it's a, you know, Brian May. And I'm like, wow. That, but I had to look. And this, this was a Brian May that's, you know, an Australian, um, you know, from Adelaide. Actually, he, he passed away in Victoria, um, in Australia there. So, so different, wow. different guy, not the guy from Queen. As a matter of fact, that's what I put on my notes here. Brian May, not the guy from Queen. Similar accents, Max? Would you say similar? But probably, probably. They could. They'd probably. They'd probably be able to chat and understand yeah. each other, mate. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, Tangerine Dream, Max, because uh, I, I don't know when this episode is going to air, but we were discussing the thing earlier, and that John Carpenter was slated to direct Firestarter. Tangerine Dream did the score for Firestarter. Yeah, well, no, Tangerine Dream, Dream was. I'm always going to bring up Firestarter. That's my thing. Okay, can I have that, Wait, guys? Get off Fire that. For those of you who I'll, can't I'll, see it, Max has an orange tangerine like sweatshirt on. Right, so that's right. It's all falling into place, Max. You're doing a good job. It's all falling into. That's place. right. It's going to be the uh, do do androids tangerine dream replicants replicants sheep. <laughs> I, I always thought, I always thought that Tangerine Dream Evangelist sounded very similar because they were all like sort yeah. of electronic uh, type music, you know. I it, it, and I think mm-hmm. they bring that up, and you know, we're going back to an old episode. But Ridley Scott mentions how he loves Vangelis because he he's sort of new to the music scene with his electronica and you know, synthesizers. Yeah, yeah, the electronica, the the you know that whole, and I and I think when you it makes sense to have. You know, for those for those types of movies to have that kind of music. Now, uh, you know, the the music from Brian May totally different um, because this is more of a thump thump. You know, right. um, bring that adrenaline level up, kind of a kind of a thing. So the the musical approach that Brian May took is totally different than than like say some of those others that we were talking about because this is more of a metal um, future, you know, aggression. And all of that. It, it's interesting when they when they interview George Miller, they talk about his influences, and and of course, like most of these guys that made science fiction or horror, he was influenced. He loved watching the Saturday morning serials, like you know, The Phantom, or he talks about The Phantom and Galahad. He loved comic books. He loved like old western movies. And I mean, The Road Warrior is it's a post apocalyptic film, but it, it's it's definitely set up like a western too. You know, Max is the lone gunman coming into town to. To help the townsfolk against the, you know, the, the savages out in the desert type thing, you know, whether they're the bad gunmen or, or whatever mm-hmm. they are. And it, it kind of reminds me of Shane sometimes at times, like the storyline, but it's, it's, I really well, love and, it. And this is probably my favorite. And Max is not a really nice guy as a general rule either. Right. And, you know, it takes that, that kind of a, mentality to deal with that type of you know uh nemesis as it would be you know these these people and it, you know the whole feel the whole feel of it you know as we were talking before too is that you know in so many other futuristic type movies you know we see you know the space stuff or high tech well now here we have where technology has been pretty much destroyed decimated where you know these are wheeled vehicles going through harsh terrain and desert and, you know, they're stealing, you know, they're going after pro- people's provisions and gasoline and all of that stuff. So it's, uh, you know, no, 
laser shooting, it's, you know, machine gun fire and no, uh, you know, hide, you know, floating bikes. I mean, it's all on wheels and stuff. Just that, just right. that, um, that ultralight or whatever they call that thing, that helicopter thing. But his car. Yeah. Is, the gyro captain is the guy. The gyro captain, right. yeah. Yep. Yeah. And the car was a Ford, so I'm very excited about that. Not a Mustang. Very. Well, they they talk about um, in the film that that was what was so popular about is that Australian at Australian Australia at that time had a very big car culture. Like there's a cult of car culture. That's a lot of people that are that are gearheads love this movie because of all the cars and the motorcycles and the trucks and things like that. And there are people that like it for its post-apocalyptic wasteland and, 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 the action and the stunts and, and the violence and things. And it and really is had curly a, hair, Rich. There was not one. That's I don't right. think there's any curly hair guys. There's no curly hair. Not I think one. most of them were, well, the ones that did have curly hair, they shaved the, shave their heads. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that's what they There were a lot of mohawks. Movie. There was a lot of mohawks. A lot of mohawks. Yeah, mohawks. Yeah, and it, and it, and it is. It's, uh, you know, the car, there's, it, there's so much to appeal uh, you know, to too many, so many people, because like you said, the car culture, I mean, because here we're looking at a, a futuristic thing where, you know, we're not driving hovercrafts or in cars that have been, you know, armored, you know, and yeah. welded and you got sparks flying and you got, you know, all of that. So it's a very, um, like, I, like I was kind of joking around, you know, kind of almost a grindhouse feel. Um, but mm-hmm. it was, you know, totally, a, a totally different, way of doing this and you know to come off of mad max you know okay we were talking about mad max 79 and and this one road warrior um which it was also known as mad max 2 coming out in may of 82 so you're only looking at a three-year span from mad max to the road warrior you know so they they, they got this one out really fast and you know like we you know, I guess maybe because it's a sequel. So we had, you had a lot of characters, you had a lot of things going on. Uh, and then Thunderdome, you know, came right out in 85. And that, that was a, yeah, that was. And I, I think. A huge difference between them, for sure. Between oh, Mad yeah. Max, Lord to Road War to Thunderdome, it's a huge difference. In the mm-hmm. And the budget, the budget. Oh, it was just good natural production. Yeah. yeah. But it, right. I mean, it's interesting, too, because the first Mad Max, like you said, Max, is it's very much an exploitation <laughs> film. Uh, it's it's yeah. Death Wish. It's Mad Max is a police officer. It's kind of it's not quite post apocalyptic. It's a future where the world's kind of screwed up, but there's still cops. There's still a police force. There's still a society, and he's a cop. And his wife and kids get killed, and he goes after the motorcycle gang that killed his wife and kids. This one goes completely into mythology, and they even bring that up in there that he, he says that that we decided right. that Max is sort of this mythological hero that has always existed across, you know, time and space. He's a very Jungian, you know, from Carl Jung or Joseph Campbell's, you know, the hero with a thousand faces that there, there have always been these stories throughout history about these guys that, that come in and they save a society, but because of what they have to do to save the society, they can't be a part of that society. And that's the American gunslinger, right. Uh, right. you know, the, the, the hard boiled cop, you know, they do what needs to be done, but they can't be a member of society proper because of what they have to do to to save society itself. And it, it's kind of cool. And I've, I've I've always dug those types of movies and, and those types of heroes in movies. And I mean, this is one of the the best ones that 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 covers that type of uh, mythos. 
No, I was just saying something like that. Mad Max. I know, Max. Max. Did you ever get that movie, you know, growing up where people have Mad Max because of the, the films? Did anybody ever call you that? Yeah, they, don't, they didn't want to they didn't want to get me mad. <laughs> no. No, I didn't I didn't get I got, I got called a lot of things, but not not Mad Max because, you know, keep in mind now Mad Max wasn't around uh when I was a kid. So yeah. Sixties and seventies was a lot different than uh you know. <laughs> In the 80s, they, they didn't have that, you know. By '79, I was in the army. They called me a lot of things that everything short of "son of God." It's kind of interesting in the in the article they they talk about. You know, you just mentioned that there's a Mad Max three. They ask him in the in the article. You know, do you think you'll make a sequel? He's like, well, I don't know. If this one's successful, maybe we will. And uh, he talks a little bit about what direction they might take it into. And he says that if they're going to make a Mad Max 3, that they really want to take it more towards traditional science fiction, which I guess it kind of was. I'm not quite sure for that that Beyond Thunderdome. But um, the other interesting thing that Miller mentions at the end of the article is they say, are you ever going to come to America and direct movies? He's like, no, nah, I prefer to stay in Australia. And he really has, for the most part, stayed in Australia. He never, you know, he's come over and done too. stuff in America, but he never moved to America and made films in Hollywood permanently. He's always sort of made films in Australia and I mean Fury Road was a massive hit and that was made in Australia. That that's that's a fantastic yeah. movie. As a matter of fact, after reading this article I want to go back and revisit all the Mad Max films, honestly. Right. Check them out one, two and three. Yeah. I just get a little bit different information on them. A little extra perspective. Well it's from the days too when that they did Real stunts. Nowadays, it's you see stuff. Yeah. You know it's green screened, or you know it's uh, CGI. You know you you watch the Avengers movies, and they're great. But you're like, Captain America doesn't like a, a a triple quadruple flip over a car and then bounces <laughs> off a tree, and it's like it's a, well, that was a cartoon. That wasn't Chris Evans right. doing that or a stuntman doing that. These movies, I don't know how they did some of the stunts in this movie. The one that you I always get is motorcycle or some of the yeah. crashes and stuff. <laughs> you ever seen the one where the guy, the guy shoots the arrow into the tire of the truck and he goes to reach out to grab the arrow for some reason and the 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 suction of the tires sucks him in between the yeah, tires yeah. and I'm like, how did oh, they yeah. do that stunt? Like that was insane. <laughs> I think that guy actually how many, died. I don't think that was. Yeah, supposed how to many broken bones? How many broken bones? Oh, plenty, I'm sure. <laughs> All right. Well, I think uh, well, the I of rock and roller Lou Melagrana is telling us that our post-apocalyptic mm-hmm. days are numbered. I am the Doctor Doctor Durant, also known as Rich Hurley. You can find me on YouTube at Doctor Durant Sanctum. I also have a Facebook page, also called Doctor Durant Sanctum. Come on by, <laughs> say hello, leave a post in an Australian accent. And I am Mad Max. Actually, I'm Max Overnighter. And Rich has a has a YouTube page. It's called Dr. Durant Sanctum. I do not have any of that stuff. But stop by Migo Like on a Facebook group on uh, on the old book of faces there. Um, uh, you also find me lurking around some of the other some of the other sites. Uh, happy happy to be here with the with the guys chatting it up. I am Lou Malagrana, apparently uh, track suits and baseball caps at times, but uh, very happy to be here with these two guys doing this. We always enjoy talking it up and uh, talking about these really fun topics and kind of revisiting things 
that were in our past and it's fine to look back sometimes and say, holy shit, was that so long ago? But uh, find us on Facebook, Amigo Like. Find us on YouTube, My Amigo Like, or wherever you want to go. But again, thanks everybody for listening. I hope you enjoyed it and uh, be ready for our, our next, our next uh, podcast. We're going to now talk about tabletop games from 1982. Back then, though, we didn't call them tabletop games. They were either called board games or card games. But it was all what we know now is games that we played on a tabletop. Joining me for this discussion is... Hi, I'm Tabletop J. And... Captain Link. All right, Captain Link, I want to go with you first. Mm -hmm. What was it like, your memories of going into a gaming store back in 1982? What was it like? So we had uh, one main game store, and it was run by this guy who smoked incessantly. And Where'd uh, you grow up? Uh, right here in, in Nashville. Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, in Nashville. And, and uh, so he was a, had a little store as a magic store across from n- not Magic the Gathering. They didn't have that then. <laughs> so they, uh, it was a magic store right across from the, uh, from the bowling alley. With little John Pica there? Uh, no, no. So, <laughs> so, uh, so, um, so he would show us all these magic tricks and try to get us to buy these magic tricks. But Steve Jackson... Uh, I think he's from Atlanta, as, as I remember. He he was trying to sell all these his his games, and he would come to this magic store, and there was a rack, and it was like a comic book rack or something like that. One of those old Spend wire rack. rats, one of those old wire racks, and and he would he would put the you had these plastic bags hanging from the wire racks, and it was all a bunch of Steve Jackson games. And the first time I ever ran into anything like D&D was right there, and it was something called um, Fantasy Trip. And they had uh, two games. One was called Melee, and the other one was called uh, Wizard. And they were like two little modules. So one was all about fighting, the other one was all about magic. And um, then they had something like a like a module or something, but there was this one, I forgot what it's called, some kind of dragon thing. But the, the cool thing was is that they said that they hid a actual dragon somewhere in the world and that the clues to that were somewhere in this adventure. If you played it, you could figure out where the dragon was. And if you did, they would give you $10,000 or something like that. So... <laughs> And of course, this magic guy—he was like, but you, "You boys need to buy this," you know. So, <laughs> so, so, uh, so. Anyway, that was that was the first time we played anything that was like D and D. And '82 was like the first year. So he ended up getting the first D and D books in. That's the first. D, the first edition D and D was rolling in full steam by '82. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the distribution wasn't the same as it is now. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you don't get new releases or anything. This was this was the peak of the Satanic Panic. Yes. Or, or like all these the early '80s, first half of the '80s, total fear in parents' minds that their kids were going to be demon possessed playing games. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I listened to Ozzy Osbourne the whole time, right? Yeah. I mean, like we all had a taste for bats, you know. So. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's uh, sort of the deal, and we we ran into D and D there. It's the first year that I actually bought dice, like you know, like as a thing. Yeah, buy yeah, yeah. buy twenty sided dice, you get a dice. That in set. itself was amazing. Right? right, 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 right. Anything beyond six sides, I was 
what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you find out like that these are some kind of ancient uh, shapes, like uh, some you. Like Euclid or somebody like that, you know, had come up with these different shapes, and they they had like some kind of other meanings, and like, oh, maybe this is dark, and <laughs> I don't know, what am I getting into? But it's cool, you know. And uh, and I will say this: the the thing that really sucked me into D and D more than anything else, it's great storytelling and everything, but that monster manual. Oh my God, that the monster manual, Fiend Folio. There was so much. Fiend Folio came, came later. later. Yeah. Because I was more fan driven, mm-hmm. but the Monster Manual had so much imagination in there, and deities and demigods. Yeah, that well, came a little later. That too. came later, much later. Yeah, but but the thing is, is that in the Monster Manual, they had breasts. <laughs> <laughs> they did. <laughs> My goodness, <laughs> this guy. This guy. It's so true. That's well, why. That's I, why. Look, it look, was. Can you, can you name which ones had breasts? Bass. Huh? That was uh, well, maybe right? so. Yeah. did. Yep. Like, dude, I remember looking the, at the it. succubus. Yeah, the succubus. <laughs> yes. and, you guys, you guys didn't just have the internet. Come on. Man. <laughs> <laughs> <What>? <laughs> this is this was the era that I was reading Savage Order Conan for yeah. that reason. Like, <laughs> boobies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. but it was it was it was and all the drawings there were very rudimentary. Yes. And, and we're going to talk about in the board games that we talk about. You're going to find the art was. At a not the level that you would expect from a professional game, because even professional uh, houses, what well, independent houses, were using sometimes teenage kids to draw. I mean, that was just the way it was. A lot of line art and stuff yeah, like yeah, that, exactly. and yeah, yeah. Sometimes you get fancy and you get those little those dot ones where they use the dots to try to do the shading. I met one of those guys at Gen Con last year. Oh, really? Yeah, he was really famous for, like, a lizard man he drew in, I I don't think it was the Monster Man, you know, I think it was, like, the DM guide or something mm-hmm. like that. He drew a lizard man, and he had it, like, you could buy it for $20. He had all these prints of it, you oh, know, whatever. Cool. Anyway, I got to talk to him for a minute, but... Nice. Kind of miss that old art, because, I mean, the new art is so much better, so much better. Well, I think it's more advanced, but I... I like the mid '80s art because it was oil based. A lot of the modern art is computer based, and mm. you could tell. Mm. And, and I just think it doesn't have as much character. And this is one of the things about looking over these games in 1982. There, there was some imagination, there was character, and people were actually really trying to do something beyond the mass market games. 1982 had a ton of mass market games. Like if you went to Child World of Toys or Rust, you'd see Scrabble everything. everything you'd like see. That. Yeah, I mean, Scrabble was was number one game that year. <laughs> that much I do know. Everybody loves Scrabble. I mean, every household had a Scrabble game. A Monopoly. Yeah, for sure. Lots Sorry, of, lots of classic <clears throat> games, but they were still some people playing war games or diplomacy or something like that. Like all the Avalon it wasn't. Hill games. Yeah, all the Avalon Hill stuff. It wasn't like. Did, but it was the time when, you know, in 82, they did start to spread out and test a few more uh, markets, a few more ideas. They really started getting into IPs, you know? IPs especially, because you had all the movies. E.T. had a game. All the video games had board games. Garfield had (laughs) games, right? Judge Dredd? I saw the Judge Dredd. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how... I never never even knew about Judge Dredd in 82. Yeah, and they, Pac-Man. they had the Pac-Man game. Yeah, they, because everyone they had really Pac-Man fever. IPs. Yeah, whatever IP was hot, they were like, well, let's make a little game for it. And Zaxxon, which is kind of funny but because still the whole the whole video game movement was 
to say, boy, I'm tired of board games. I want to play things on I'm, – I'm more futuristic by playing things on a video screen. But now they're taking things on a video screen and applying it to tabletop games, mm-hmm. which is kind of a curiosity when you think about it. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's it's interesting how we're going in reverse now. You know, so a Marvel <laughs> movie comes out, five Marvel board games come out. Like, <laughs> we, we, we – it's just, uh, you know, creativity is, is difficult to come by. It's hard to come up with your own original idea, but it's, it's, uh, it's fun. It's like, um, you know, it, it feels good to see something and be like, oh, I want to translate it into this other medium that I enjoy and I understand. It's its, its own creative process. It's an, a creative outlet for people as well. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's fun and, and, and works out. Well, you know, there, there's a lot – this was an age of so many things – blowing up or or that would be super exciting and when we talk about hobby board games that is board games outside of what you'd see in department stores there were some things that that were they were trying to go a little bit beyond the norm because a lot of games were just label slaps you were essentially taking shoots and ladders you were taking children's games and just putting a different label on it but when you had hobby gamists Companies like Avalon Hill, companies like Iron Crown Enterprises, they were trying to do something just a little bit more than your average person would would sometimes enjoy. The, the rules were a bit more complex. Oh, yeah, definitely. We played the Riddle of the Ring here earlier, <laughs> and let me tell you, I was reading through this rule book. Woo, that's it's a dense boy. They've really, <laughs> they've really cleaned them up in these recent years, you know. So it's it, it's interesting. They just really wanted to get their point across. They would say the same rule in five different places with a paragraph for each time. I was like, wow, okay, I got it. You know, yeah. I got it the first time. But Riddle of the Ring. You want to talk about having a very rudimentary artwork on the map? It looked mm-hmm. like someone from middle school made it. But the cards themselves had unique line art. That's something that was mm-hmm. indicative of the era. I did notice that the board itself had your player's aid printed on the board. That was kind of revolutionary for that time period. That's pretty much a standard now in in modern board games. But for 1982, I mean, you got to figure the game came out on an independent publisher in 1977, 1982. Iron Crown Enterprises got the official license, so it's it's an official token game, and then they re-released it in 85. But I think that's one of the fun things about some, playing some of these vintage games is we're able to compare and contrast how far the board gaming community has has come because now it's easier for us to get together and play games. But we're able to see how games have have advanced as well, and it's just so, it's almost like you're feeling you go back in time when you play some of these vintage games. Yeah, but I would say one of the things that I would say to you guys that. Um, that impact of D and D and things like that was so was, the real, was, was, yes. was so huge yeah, because because um, like playing that Riddle of the Rings, mm-hmm. you could say whatever you want to about it. It's not a great board game, but but it does give you a sense of adventure, and that's yeah. what everybody was looking for at that time. Yes, everything that that we were all the D and D and all that stuff was this idea of adventure. And that's the year, the first year I played traveler too. traveler came out, which by the way, is the only game that I've ever died making characters. I, I have died more often making a character in traveler than actually playing the game. And it's funny you mentioned traveler because D and D put TSR on the map mm-hmm. as a major gaming company. Mm-hmm. And they realized they had a hit with, 
something in the realm of fantasy, well, obviously they got to do something with science fiction. And 1982 is the year that Star Frontiers right. came out, yeah. and they build it as a more accessible sci-fi game. The reason being, Traveler was so complicated. Where, right? yeah, yeah, it was a, it was like, okay, here's the deal. So there was a classroom in my high school where the Traveler people would gather for lunch. And these are the people who are the math geniuses and stuff like that. And it was almost like like they were like the super nerds. Like they thought that they were exclusive nerds, right? Like <laughs> before anybody even thought that that was a good thing, you know. But, but anyway, so, so like they kind of ex- excluded me because, oh, he's not – He's not good at math and stuff like that. You don't you, you you don't so they didn't want me to play Traveler and I was like, I can play Traveler, I know I can. So I go in there to play Traveler, and of course my first character I made, I died making the character, <laughs> which is the most ridiculous thing in the world. It's a cool system of how they create the character, much different than D D or or like you said, the uh, TSR's um, Star Frontiers. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Star Frontiers had its own world building. They had like these monkey people that yeah. were able to fly. They had insectoids, right? Yeah, yeah. Remember, I mean, the little blobs that could shape shift. It was a great. Oh yeah, the blobs. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And it was like the world building, and that was part of the fun of the eighties. Was there was these were the early stages of world building within games. Mm-hmm. That would now that's pretty much a standard. If there's any games that are popular, you can't just play the game. You've got to know the lore. You got to know the background. Yeah, yeah. These are the early stages of that. Yeah, I think I think the main thing, kind of the thing that I'm trying to get at, this idea of adventure and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Well, think about this. Before that, all games were you roll and you move, you play cards. You know, you could play poker, gin rummy, mm-hmm. something like that. You know, it's all very straight. It's all very straight. And war games, when war games first started coming out, we're using these chits and stuff like that, right? Um, it was full of tables. Right. It was just yes, tons yes, and yes, tons yes, of yes, tables. Yes, but yes. but what I'm trying to say is, is that this was the first, kind of the first year where I felt like people who were creative were given an outlet. Games became an outlet for creativity. Like, unlike anything else ever before. And now I think we've gotten to the point where, in our modern gaming, that we're not necessarily being creative, but we still get that sense of adventure. You still have that engagement that you don't normally get from the the older, um, you know, the previous games, right? right? So, yeah. I don't know that I I agree. I think a lot of the modern gaming, the appeal of it is that sense of creativity. For someone like me, I'm not artistic at all. I'm not musically talented at all. But I love playing games and finding the creative path, like, Mm -hmm. through the game of, hey, I'm going to try this strategy and maybe this combo, this kind of thing. That is where I get my creativity day-to-day, week-to-week. I I, I live for that. So, And I think that I agree. This is really where we make that shift from the, you know, start to make that shift and it's yeah. come a long way since but yeah. from that have the luck happen and then you know see what happens to you kind of thing to oh something happens and now I get a choice and I can kind of go out of my way or oh I could come up with a new strategy that no one's ever thought of or something like that that it's it's really powerful and important for for games and what brings us together and has us coming back you know mm-hmm. this the early 80s was the time period where 
companies were experimenting with putting electronics in games. Remember, just a few years before, the Dungeons & Dragons Electronic Labyrinth came out. But 1982 had Electronic Stratego, and Lost Treasure was an electronic game. A lot of kids were just fascinated with lights, oh, lights dark, and sounds. Dark Tower. Another game that just got re-implemented recently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, even games that were established, like Uno, 1982, had Uno Wild Tiles. Uh, Sequence came out, a game that you still see on store shelves. <laughs> Here, you know, we have we are We are in tabletops, but, but like, uh, board game store right now. And, and so you're saying we don't have... Sequence on their shelf. No, yeah. we're we're not currently selling sequence, but we do have one game from 1982, which is Survive: Escape from Atlantis. This is a, a anniversary edition. The game this is is remade from was from 82. It's the only game we have in the store for sale. It's still in shrink wrap. You know, it's not like a, a used old game or whatever. This is a new copy mm-hmm. from of a game that was a, essentially designed in 82. It's made it all this way. So it's. You know, that's we actually don't have one much the... else from before '82 here. We have like one or two monopolies, and that's it. This is like the first wave of that generation of game, and we have it here on the shelf. And I think that's kind of cool. Let's talk about how there are some games that they actually just refresh the artwork on it, refresh mm-hmm. some of the tokens yeah, on one it. One or two little rules changes because it's like you know this is a little clunky or doesn't make sense. Let's clean it up. Uh, but for the most part, the core concept of the game is the exact same, and it, it still uh, plays well, you know? We're talking about how sometimes they just have to update the pieces. When we just played Riddle of the Ring, the original pieces to play the characters were little colored rings, like literally little rings that were maybe like, a quarter like, of an inch. Like, uh, little little rings you'd put on a friendship bracelet. That's yeah, yeah. So they, they called them markers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They called them markers, right. right? They didn't call them meeples or... Mm-hmm. But or, there were ridiculous colors, like a black rider would be pink, mm-hmm. and Frodo was white. Uh, whereas when you re-implement a game for a modern day, they actually have pieces exactly. that, that, that look like something that you don't... Yeah, this looks like... It's, uh, so this, we look at Survive, game, yeah. Escape from Atlantis, the modern version, it's just so refreshed, and mm-hmm. it... The mechanics are like they were the decades same, yeah, ago, of course. but you could you could put it on the table and it has some weight but to it. But their meeples don't have legs. They look like they're all wearing dresses. What's up with that? <laughs> it's hard to swim it's in a dress. <laughs> no, no, that's the legs are underwater. <laughs> oh, 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 It's just their upper body and then water. Maybe they're like, in a life raft. <laughs> exactly. Show us a unique overview of the tabletop games from 1982 and how far we've come as a gaming community, but but also some of the game implements we know that have survived over the decades. Jay, we are sitting in Tabletops, a fantastic gaming store that I love playing in, play board games on Tuesday nights. Tell Tell us a little bit about Tabletops and why our listeners should check it out. Oh, Tabletops is just your local game store, man. The the owner, Josh, has been here for a few years, just right before COVID. He opened up, and he's been trucking through all along, just having a space for us to have a good time. That's his his whole purpose, and he's doing a great job. I've been helping him out as best I can, and we try to make a good community. Well, he, he doesn't do magic tricks, though, and he doesn't smoke all the time. It's actually a pretty nice store. <laughs> If you're visiting Music City, definitely check out Tabletops, Hobbies, and Games. 
Hi, this is William Stout. You might know me for my Wizards movie poster, My Dinosaurs. And also, a long time ago, I did a Lord of the Rings coloring book. Uh, when I want to hear more about classic science fiction and fantasy, I tune in to Star Pod Log, and I hope you do too. Hello again, cats and kittens. This uh, commentary concerns Star Log issue number 61. We are going to concentrate on the poor woman who is named after a sandal, Miss Bergman. And she's pretty great. She was born in 1951. She uh, was noted for her dancing as six feet tall. She uh, worked a lot with Bob Fosse and did most of his uh, work on uh, the Broadway stage. She was well noted as a New York dancer. And when uh, John Milius needed uh, to hire someone with the look of uh, Valeria, the Queen of Thieves, he came to Fosse. Fosse gave him three names. And, of course, uh, Sandal Bergman won the uh, won the role. So this is what she says about Valeria, the Queen of Thieves. She, Valeria, is Conan's partner and his lover. That's the way it is today with more husbands and wives, both working. Valeria is a leader, a very strong woman, both mentally and physically. One never outweighs the other. Our kendo, which is sword fighting training, captured a lot of that for me. She then reached for a French fry and dipped it in mustard. Bergman spent months alongside Schwarzenegger and Jerry Lopez, who played Subotai, studying with swordmaster Kiyoshi Tamazaki. They learned about various forms of martial arts and the philosophy behind them. She maintains that all this training helped her prepare for the role and for the grueling work needed to make it work. Even after production began last year in Spain, which had been 1980-81, she still studied augmenting her dance training. I got a very good grasp of the character as a result. Besides the kendo training, Bergman says she and the others met regularly with Milius for work sessions of their characters and the script. We had work sessions that were very much like Broadway rehearsals. John wanted a lot from us facially. He said, your faces are like landscapes, and he asked us to watch all these Japanese movies by Akira Kurosawa, Seven Samurai, and Yojimbo. These movies rely a lot on facial expression, and they're also funny. John really wanted Conan to be like those movies. She's seen the film about three times. She liked it a lot. Uh, she said she's hard on herself as a performer, and she's very critical, but she uh, felt she did a good job. Something else she doesn't mention is she and Schwarzenegger both suffered uh, injuries on set. She almost lost a finger, and Schwarzenegger got a concussion because his head bounced off a rock. Uh, because Sandal Bergman is six feet tall, they couldn't find a uh, stunt woman that could uh, do her stunts for her, so she had had to mostly do all of her stunts herself because you're not going to put a guy in a blonde wig and, you know, shave his chest and whatnot. It's just not the same. Not the same. You need Sandal Bergman. Um, again, she is 71. She's still living. She uh, goes on to rah-rah cheerlead the movie and about, uh, you know, her performance. I do like the fact she really did a deep dive into Robert E. Howard's Conan books, and she read the Marvel comics, so she had a strong... Uh, strong knowledge of the character and uh, what they were doing. Of course, uh, Valeria was based on B-E-L-I-T, Billet, the uh, queen of uh, whatever in the uh, books, uh, but they didn't want to use that name for whatever reason. As I say, uh, Sandal Bergman's still alive today. Uh, she was married and divorced. I don't know if she had any kids or not, doesn't say, but uh, she was in the opening song, I'm Alive by ELO, as well as the final title number of Xanadu, which killed ELO's career. The less said about Xanadu, the better. Though many people love Xanadu, and uh, I'm not one of them. Jeff Lynne uh, has much to answer for. Jeff Lynne being the lead uh, 
co-creator of ELO, Electric Light Orchestra, as well as uh, the songwriter of most of their songs. So Bergman's participation in Xanadu also led indirectly to her being evicted from her apartment in New York and subsequent relocation to California. She'd been subletting her apartment in New York in defiance of a clause in her agreement with her landlord. And during her four months in California for filming, he became aware of the situation. Bergman has said she did not return to New York instead of having friends pack up her stuff and ship it to California. She uh, also won a Golden Globe Award for Best New Star of the Year for Conan. Anyway, Sandal Bergman, uh, great career. It's a very good issue of Starlog. If you uh, own it, thumb through it, you'll enjoy it. Uh, Sandal had a nice career. Uh, Again, she retired in 2003. And uh, I don't know what else she's been doing lately, but I'd love to know if anybody knows, reach out. Hey, let's talk about a convention that we went to recently. Lexington Comic and Toy Con in Kentucky. We've been there before. We were invited back. Wow, what an incredible convention. It was pretty exciting. They had the the huge dealer's room, and it was so crowded. I I mean, a lot of cons have have almost gotten bigger now now after COVID because people are happy to get out again. And um, there are a lot of people there and and just a, a lot of things going on. Yeah, another thing that they do a lot, and I'm noticing more and more conventions are starting to pick up on this momentum, is having food trucks lined up outside. And that's good because, you know, people like to to buy the food where it's convenient, and and they'll pay more, too, just because it's convenient and not have to leave the con. And because they had so many food trucks, the lines weren't long. Oh yeah, that was another thing. Even though it was it was crowded, it was it was outside, and and there were tables to sit, which was nice. It's great, but, yeah. Yeah, I remember that, like the area being crowded, but yeah, we didn't have to wait long to get food, and and it was a windy day, so you had to like, you know, watch your napkins, put something <laughs> on top of the napkins, and all. But yeah, it was great. Even the board gaming area there, tabletop gaming. It's another thing they had organized play testers there which is fantastic. So you're able to not only browse around, shop, see celebrity panels, but also get some gaming in. And that is becoming more and more of not just a side room for uh, just filling up space, but more conventions are actually building in organized play. I loved it. We just got back from Huntsville Comic and Pop Culture Con in Huntsville, Alabama, Rocket City. I mean, the city itself, I love visiting Huntsville. I think it's a cool spot. But this convention we go to every year. There was a lot of energy. I mean, because there were just so many people there. And um, a, a big variety of guests. And I think the people just loved seeing all the guests. And there were a lot of cosplayers there. That was cool, too. All these different cosplayers walking around. And the vendor's room, which was really awesome. So much great stuff. Yeah, and the comic book vendors there. I always end up buying things there. I'm there to buy, so I love that, spending money and getting some things for our collection. But also, the comic book celebrities there. They always got great ones. Roy Thomas this year, a legend in the industry. The list kept going on and on. I mean, this convention, it's kind of funny how things post-COVID, the convention scene has changed so much. Either some conventions went out of business or some are exploding. This is one of the ones that just keeps exploding, getting bigger and better, and just getting just 
more exciting. Yeah, they did say that this is the uh, the biggest year they've had. I, I mean, there was a long line outside, like on Saturday in in the afternoon. I mean, not just in the morning, but in the afternoon, there was still a there was a long line of people waiting to uh, to register. Yeah, it's a it's a great city to visit. I know that we will be going next year, and we encourage our listeners to check out this convention in Rocket City. Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back, a great movie. Now a great video game. A movie which challenged your imagination. Now a video game where the challenge never ends. You saw Luke Skywalker battle the Imperial Walkers. Now bring the battle home. The Force was with Luke Skywalker. Will it be with you? Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back video game. For your Atari and Sears video game systems from Butler Brothers. Out ones to beat. Somebody out there? E.T. Video game? It's the video game that lets you pretend you're E.T. Running away from secret agents, falling into danger, finding a phone to call home, and discovering the best thing on earth. A friend. E.T. Only from Atari. Starlog Magazine, issue number 62, cover date September 1982. One of the highlights for me in 1982 was that that song, Pac-Man Fever. I mean, the, the song was everywhere and everyone loved it. I had the single of it. I totally remember it. Oh yeah, definitely. Buckner and Garcia. Yes. Pac-Man <laughs> Fever. Weren't they from Atlanta? I believe so. I believe so, yeah. And... um of course, I was in South Georgia, um, and, I, and I was taking dance classes back then, and we did a show at, at the junior high, I remember this, we did a dance to, to Pac-Man Fever, and it, it was so weird, because when we went on stage, when the music started, everyone in the audience started cheering, <laughs> and then when, you know, and then when we finished the dance, they cheered again, I mean, we got the biggest applause. <laughs> the funny thing is, like, we look at that now, and... It was on Dr. Demento. It was in regular rotation on Dr. Demento. Like, nerdy kids like us liked it, but it had mainstream appeal because everyone had Pac-Man fever. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it, it was something that fit the times. And, and it was cool that the song used, um, they used sound effects from the game, which was neat. I wish somebody recorded that. I would have loved to see New Dance to Pac-Man fever. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you would have. <laughs> Right here with my main man, Jamie, talking about the video games of 1982. 1982. Okay, did you love going to arcades in 1982? What I mean, you grew up in the South, so what did you have? You didn't have Chuck E. Cheese. What was like the South version of Chuck E. Cheese? What was it called? Showbiz Pizza. <laughs> Showbiz Pizza, for sure, with Billy Bob the Bear. <laughs> okay, so here's some games that you might have played at Showbiz Pizza, and I definitely played... At Pizza Places and at Chuck E. Cheese's, because I grew up in Connecticut. You grew up in? Nashville, Tennessee. All right. Zaxxon premiered in 1982. I remember being so confused because in order to go up, you had to pull the joystick back. And to go down, you had to put the joystick forward. I remember crashing behind that wall all the time. Yeah, you had to, and you had to enter that wall just at at the right angle uh, of that too, or else that you would blast into it. But that was, I mean, Zaxxon probably is one of my favorite video games of all time. 
because it was cool. Like you would bomb those the, those little oil, uh, yes. like the oil refinery or the yes. oil tanks, and you were constantly shooting. And then later they were released Super Zaxxon, if you remember. Yep. Yeah, it was this is the era of sequels. We know nineteen eighty two. It was just a different angle. I guess yes. they were, it was like I guess three D. I guess yeah. that would be how you would term it. Sequels this year included Miss Pac-Man and Super Pac-Man because we were still feeling Pac-Man fever in 1982. And actually, 1982 is when that song Pac-Man fever came out. Throw that in there. But Miss Pac-Man, I think, was different because I don't think it was the same company. Which is odd in itself, right? <laughs> hey, all's, all's fair when in, in Pac-Man War, right? Dig Dug, which was one of my personal favorites. Everybody knows Dig Dug. And Dig Dug is... 1982 pretty much released the classics that everybody knows 40 years later. Yep. Donkey Kong Jr. Donkey Kong Jr., Dig I mean, Dug, we're talking about, as, yeah, we're, pole position. Yes. We're talking about the Prepare standards. to qualify. Yeah. We're talking about the standards. I remember even when – if I saw another kid putting in quarters to pole position, I would stand next to him just to hear, prepare to qualify. Tron. Oh, my God. That changed – Movies, every, I mean, that Tron video game was so dynamic. I loved it. Absolutely. Those light cycles, I sucked at them. But I loved, <laughs> I loved playing that and, like how, and how you would – that one board where you have, you're pitted against the MCP. Mm-hmm. And I loved that. The, it was like four games in one. Oh, absolutely! Well, yeah, you or four skill skill challenges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was it, it. Was awesome. Jungle Hunt, loved it too. I mean, how how much fun was it? Yeah, it's kind of like Pitfall. It's like it's kind of yeah, like it, it, it was kind of like a human Pitfall to me. Versus like, okay, swing on the vines, swim a little. I remember Mr. Do playing that, and the only place I knew that had Mr. Do, my parents would bring me to. Believe it or not, remember how McDonald's had these like playgrounds? Of course, right, right, of course. Okay, there was this Burger King in Meriden, Connecticut that had a playground. And no Burger Kings around us had a playground except for this one in Meriden. And guess what? They had Mr. Do. And I remember, like, that must have been like a prototype. Burger King was trying to figure out, can we outdo McDonald's Playland? But obviously they couldn't because I don't remember that being a thing. No, they and it never made its way down south. Qbert. Yeah, everybody loves Cuba. The, the first video game to ever feature swearing. I don't remember that part, but I remember. <laughs> Asshole? <laughs> I don't remember that at all. But I do remember playing Cubert. And Cubert was one of those things. It wasn't just an arcade. A lot of these games found their ways in the grocery stores. Because I remember, I remember playing Miss Pac-Man and, you know, everybody has Galaga. But Miss Pac-Man and Galaga in Kroger when the Kroger was here back in the early 80s. But at the Super X, which was a drugstore that was right next to it, they had Zaxxon. See, in my area, it was at pizza places. Like, you would go to a pizza parlor anywhere in Connecticut, and there would be one, two, or three video games in there. Well, it came back later, and that's when they had, you know, like Super Mario Brothers. You'd find that, like, oh, pizza oh, places. Yeah, yeah. Like, later, that was Super Mario Brothers and that Galaga. Because Kavura grew combo. up in South Georgia, and she said that she remembers them at Pizza Hut all the time. Oh, absolutely. Pizza Hut was a big deal down south, right? Huge. Huge. And they, uh, and they had and had, had tabletops. And they had the oh, tabletop right. yeah, version yeah, yeah. version of those. Yeah. Time Pilot? 
I love that game. <laughs> I, I could play that all. I could play that all the time. I don't know why. It's just fascinating. It's really not that much fun when you think about it with an adult mind, but I, I, I do enjoy it. One of my absolute all-time favorite games of 1982 was Joust. I loved it so much, especially when you could fall into the lava pits. It was all right. I liked it. I mean, I, I would pl- I'd still play it, but it was always – Moon Patrol came out in 1982. That's right. Everybody liked that. Was that was a fun one. Yeah. Robotron 2084. Moon, that was a hard one. Moon Patrol, absolutely. If you want if you want the realistic version of it, drive in the interstates in Nashville, Tennessee now. <laughs> All those potholes? Yeah, absolutely. Burger Time? Yeah, again, classics. I, mean, these I are, love that I, game so these all, much. These are all classics. I love squashing the pickle and the egg. <laughs> I know. It was the, uh, Do you remember the ads on the back of comic books? Because you collected comic books, too. Do you remember the Burger Time ads for Intellivision? Burger Time, Joust, Reactor. <laughs> I mean, those... Comic those, books were advertising video games constantly. Absolutely. For sure, because it's just thing about it. you. Uh, you want kids? It's yeah. It's across marketing of kids. Kids like comic books and kids like video games. All right, Frontline came out in 1982, as well as Kangaroo, which was pretty much like a Donkey Kong knockoff. All right, these councils were released in 1982. This is what I consider the true council wars because before this, it was like Atari versus Intellivision, but now. We have ColecoVision, Atari 5200, and Vectrex all came out in one year. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's the Atari 5200, I I didn't know one person who owned it. I knew a kid that got it when it came out. He got it for Christmas 1982, Matt DeSanti. So we hung out. They had this kid, Bernie, in my class and this kid, Matt, in my brother's class. And Matt and Bernie lived near each other, so my parents would drop us off at one of their houses, and we'd all play games together. And Matt got the Atari 5200. And, man, I thought that kid was super rich, too. He was like, man, I don't know anybody that has this. And it had the Pac-Man that looked like the arcade Pac-Man, not like the Atari Pac-Man that everybody had What? Bonk, 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 bonk. And sucked. I mean, <laughs> that, that, that was one of the worst translations from, from arcade. Such a disappointment. And that came out in 1982. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 remember, I remember getting that Atari Pac-Man and thinking, man, this is such a colossal disappointment. These graphics just suck. Also, I mean, ColecoVision to me, I loved ColecoVision because I had Donkey Kong. And, like, the Donkey Kong version for ColecoVision, I really thought, like, man, I'm playing in the arcade. But at home, because my mother cleaned houses yeah. for extra. Because my mother's a housewife, but she cleaned houses for extra money. And there's this house, the Goldbergs. She'd bring me over there when I was like in, during su- summertime. She's like, and they, Mrs. Goldberg would let me play with her son's Eddie's ColecoVision. I thought I was at the arcade. I was like the most exciting. I love ColecoVision more than I like Atari 5200. I just liked it a lot, a real lot. And then later on, I didn't get it in 1982, but I ended up did getting a Vectrex. And probably around 1984 when they started going out on clearance. And the reason I remember getting it at Child World, because my grandfather looked at it and he goes, Hey, kid, look at this. It's $40 and you get to pick one game. And I was like, they got Star Trek. Oh, my God, I'm yeah. getting and they had, get this, in 1982, they had for Vectrex, Star Trek the motion picture game. How dumb is that? You got a start, new Star Trek movie coming out, but you have a new video game called Star Trek the motion picture. It's like they, five didn't, years earlier. They, didn't, <laughs> they didn't understand 
that you got to make the video games to tie into the current movies, not to retroactively go into past movies, which they did that with Atari. Remember the Empire Strikes Back video game? It took them that long to come out with 1982, The Empire Strikes Back. And guess what? I had it. And, and it I lo- sucked. Dude, I love that game. It straight up sucked. When you got the force and the snow spear started glowing. Are you... That was the one we – wasn't that the one the where – The ad-ats. Yeah, it's the ad Anything boring. with ad I want. And I was like, man, if I keep – I'm down to 40 ad Yeah, it's just – I couldn't figure out were they, trying to mil- were they trying to milk it or were they just trying to – or were they limited in technology? Because, you know, you had that Star Wars that had the had the Star Wars where it was just basically the ad And then you also had the the one that came out later. Was it like the following year? Where, Jedi Arena. Star Wars. Yeah. yeah that game sucks. Yeah. Okay, E.T. came out that year because they said, well, we're not going to do like Star Wars. And that absolutely wrecked the whole market. (laughs) I mean, that pretty much... It took five and a half weeks to make that game. They just rushed it to get make sure they got it by Christmas. And that game, I remember being so excited because I loved E.T. And I played that game, and I was like, this is stupid. And there's somewhere in New Mexico or Arizona or out west where there's like a a million copies in the somewhere buried deep. But everyone loved Pitfall, Pitfall Harry. Yeah, everybody likes Pitfall. I mean, because it was cool. It's like the gold bars, yeah, the silver yeah. bars that you're collecting them. I mean, it was yeah, it was kind of unique for the time. Sure it was side scrolling, especially for 2600. Yeah, yeah. But is it? It doesn't compare to anything in the arcade. Absolutely not. But it was one of those things. I remember the first time I played it. My brother had a friend Levi. And we played at his house in his bedroom. He had a 12 inch. TV on the floor in the middle of his bedroom with an Atari in front of it. And we would lay down on our stomachs playing it. And that kid would, like, he's the first guy that knew that would watch Doctor Who. And I was like, what's this Doctor Who? Let's turn it off and play Atari. It was mm-hmm. like, it was such an interesting time in 1982. And especially considering the amazing games that Activision was making, like Chopper Command and Mega Mania and Barnstorming. I mean, they were just pumping out these amazing games. Yeah, and what's like the, what was that company, iMagic? They had like Dragonfire. Um, yeah, all these third-party games like were Cosmic, coming out. Cosmic like, Arc. Yeah, yeah. Third-party games are huge. Yeah. First horror game ever to come out. Haunted House for the Atari 2600. Do you remember that? I remember it. I never played it. I remember thinking it was kind of like Adventure. I, I, I liked it. Uh, do you remember the Sword Quest? It was supposed to be a series of four games. Supposed to have like comic book tie-ins. I, I, I remember it. I never played it. Sucked. Yeah. Uh, I mean, another Activision game, River Raid. I loved it. Yeah, absolutely. I remember that very well. Activision Activision turned out to be a pretty, pretty reliable for... Co- a company for um, manufacturing video games. All right. And one of my favorite video game advertisements, and it's the type of thing you have to see it to believe it, the commercial for Parker Brothers Spider-Man game. Do you remember the Green Goblin? Like, it was it was way better than that cornball movie that came out where he was wearing armor. Like, the Green Goblin in the ad actually looked like the Green Goblin. I would watch that ad saying, man, I want that game so bad. And the ad was the best part because the game sucked. <laughs> Even, I mean, it, it was awful. Anything comic book related for a video game at that time was just a bunch, a pile of junk shit. <laughs> it really was. Superman, Superman terrible. 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 I wanted it just because it was Spider-Man. Superman. Spider-Man got it, though. Sucked. Had to have it. Had to have it. Hey, Jamie. 
Thank you for sharing some memories about video games of 1982. One of the beautiful things that we got to do last year was go to the Music City Multicon and play so many of these games. It was awesome. (laughs) It really was. I'm 47 years old, and it was awesome. I played Time Pilot. I played Time... I'm trying to think of the games I played. played So it was like everything you loved, like comic books, video games, toys. It was just cosplay. It was just crazy how much stuff was there. Yeah, I mean, if you like video games, you just go there, and I I could play there all day and not think... Just to, and it's great because you turn off your mind. Yeah, you turn off your like mind. One pl- one play. price to get in, and everything is included. Like oh, well worth oh, well worth the money. If you pay fifty bucks, you can be there. What from seven to seven or the seven whole weekend to, seven to twelve? Yeah, all yeah. weekend. Absolutely worth it. It's absolutely worth it to play those vintage video games. And I love playing games with you. Thanks for sharing memories, Jamie. <laughs> When you make a pledge, you send us a clear message. It means not only you want more Doctor Who, but you'll dig down and pay for it. Pledges talk, and KCET listens. So when I tell you you're in control, I'm not a lying Suntari and I'm telling the truth. But if you're still holding out, let's see if an old friend from a previous regeneration can get you on the phone. Hello. I'm Tom Baker. While I was wandering around in the TARDIS, I ran across a little fellow... Sort of short and drinky, big eyes, who kept telling me to phone home. I didn't know what he meant by home, but when I got back to KCET, I finally found out what he was talking about. Now I want all of you to do what the little fellow says. Phone home right now. Call KCET, your home for the best in science, wildlife and drama programming. And of course, the only place you'll find Doctor Who. Your call to 664-2828 right now can help keep KCET my permanent home in Southern California, and I'd like that very much. Keith Bradbury, Starlog, Issue 62, The New Doctor Who. It was February 1st in 1982 when I first started watching Doctor Who. It started airing on my local PBS station, and because I lived in Central Illinois, I was watching Will TV out of Champaign-Urbana. Now, I was a 14-year-old kid, and I had seen Star Wars in the theaters, as well as Empire Strikes Back at that time. I also liked shows like Battlestar Galactica. I was watching reruns of the original Star Trek, and I was a huge Buck Rogers in the 25th century uh, fan. So, uh, in 82, there wasn't a lot of other science fiction around. All the series had pretty much come to a conclusion. Uh, We were still waiting on Jedi, of course, and it hadn't hit the theaters yet. But uh loved science fiction, so uh, when this show started advertising that it was going to be coming on the PBS station and that it was science fiction, I wanted to watch. So I started with Tom Baker's very first episode, Robot. Now, I didn't really know the history of Doctor Who as a kid. I hadn't really heard of it before that. Even though it had been in England for a long period of time, I had no exposure to it. But I started watching it, and I was hooked very quickly into the series and really enjoyed it. Now, my first inkling that there was more than just this one Doctor was when I got to the story The Brain of Morbius, which is a fourth Doctor story. And in it, he engages in this uh, kind of time time Lord mind-bending arm wrestling type thing where he's going against uh, this Time Lord named Morbius. And you start getting exposed to his past regenerations in that sequence there. And so that was kind of my first experience to, hey, there's more Doctors. 
But because it was a seven-year run of Tom Baker that had been on, there were a lot of episodes for me to watch of Tom Baker before I got to the point where he regenerated into the fifth Doctor. And that's what this Starlog uh, article is all about. And to me, it was kind of a shock to see uh, Tom Baker go. Uh, in fact, it was really kind of a tear-jerking uh, ending for me because I'd grown so close to this character. I really enjoyed uh, him, uh, the actor, and everything like that. Uh, it was, you know, going back in time into Tom Baker, the fourth Doctor, you know, when Sarah Jane Smith left, uh, I was shocked then. And then going into him changing into the fifth doctor, it was quite another shock on top of that. Now, I enjoyed the fifth doctor stories, and I was actually a, uh, you know, I really enjoyed the companions of the fifth doctor. You feel kind of, you know, being a kid, you kind of feel a kindred spirit with Adric, who's on the TARDIS. He's a young guy. Uh, and then uh, one of my first crushes was uh, Sarah Sutton, who played Nyssa. Um, and so I really enjoyed her. So I was uh, all set to go along with uh, the new Doctor because I was still connected to all the companions. So uh, that was no problem for me to switch gears. But as as I look back over, you know, the whole thing with Doctor Who, one of the things that was exciting uh, about the series was that it could keep on going even if it changed main actors. So the series had an incredibly long run. PBS station at stations at that time had just started to find out there was interest in going back to the old episodes, uh, including the black and white first two doctors. But we didn't know at the time that a lot of those episodes were missing and destroyed by the BBC. So we had no clue that there were missing episodes, uh, you know, at least when I was a kid. Now that's something that became a big deal as I got uh, older and, you know, and wanted to find out all these episodes I'd missed. But, you know, switching gears with the Doctor and getting a new Doctor was actually kind of an interesting experience because uh, the series just kept going. And so many other series I liked at the time, like Battlestar Galactica or, you know, Buck Rogers in the 25th Century. And Galactica came back after a big outcry with Galactica 1980, but it wasn't the same. But uh, here Doctor Who had so much to it, and that was one of the exciting things is the show just kept going and going. And then as I became an older teen, I found out, you know, hey, there were conventions and stuff going on so you could uh, go to Doctor Who conventions. And, and I went to my first one as a senior in high school in St. Louis, Missouri. So, you know, that, that was kind of exciting. Yeah, it, it's, it's a great series. And, of course, a series that impacted me enough that I actually started a Doctor Who store, Who North America. You know, you got to be really into a series to actually start an entire store over, over one show, but that's what I did. Now, Peter Davison is an interesting uh, doctor, and one of the interesting interactions I have with him is that uh, we did a major convention here in Indianapolis in conjunction with Gen Con in 2013, and we brought Peter Davison, the fifth Doctor, over. And this was the 50th anniversary year of Doctor Who, and uh, we got to do quite a few things with him, including some panels and also uh, have dinner with him. So I've actually met the fifth Doctor, uh, which as a kid, that's something I thought I would never do, but as an adult, it did happen. And that's kind of an interesting story in and of itself. Yeah, so uh, so seldom do you actually get to meet the 
people that uh, you know you kind of idolize as a kid when you're growing up. But I did get to meet him and uh, got to talk with him quite regularly and uh, while he was here and do some different things with him. Uh, that's one of the th neat things about the store. I started as a fan, but you know, with being a Doctor Who fan in the United States, you couldn't get access to the product here very easily. Now some books started showing up in places like Walden Books, and you could go buy some books there about Doctor Who. But uh, as far as toys and that sort of thing, uh, they weren't really coming over very much. Now, occasionally, uh, you would find those things at you know conventions and such, but they were highly overpriced, very difficult to get a hold of. So when the Internet started coming around in the late 90s, and being a fan of the show, I was actually... Uh, building my own website and it was mostly just fan reviews because i was just uh you know i had a big interest in the missing episodes i had a big interest in uh, uh the tv movie starring paul mcgann which had just come out you know a couple of years before that and so i was really just getting into the as far as uh, a lot of the background of it through the website when i decided hey i'm going to look up some of these uk companies so i knew it produced some of the doctor who toys like daypole and I found out from them that they didn't have anybody bringing it into the United States at the time. But uh, they agreed to sell me a fair amount of product. And I was going to just keep one for myself and then sell the rest through the website. And within a week, I had to order more because people just bought it up. And so that's really where I began. So in 1998, I started this store, and it's still going. Uh, Who North America is our store. Uh, it's at our website, www.whoandna.com. We're located in uh, Camby, Indiana, which is just outside of Indianapolis. And we have a full store there, and you're welcome to come in uh, Monday through Saturday when our store is open and see everything. Uh, there's no appointment needed to come visit. Uh, we're at a regular retail facility. And uh, we sell Doctor Who stuff, and it all started with me as a kid because I liked the show. So that's my story on how I got into Doctor Who and my experience with the Fifth Doctor. This is David Crane, co-founder of Activision and creator of the video game Pitfall, and you are listening to Starpod Log, the classic science fiction and fantasy podcast. And we are here with... Billy Mitchell, video game player of the century. Bill, welcome to the show. I appreciate you're here, sir. All right, so let's talk about your look. Before we go into talking about Tron, you have an iconic look about you, especially you're always wearing a black suit with an American flag tie and handkerchief. Can you tell us about this look? Well, sometimes I have a black suit, sometimes blue suit, sometimes a white suit. Um, let's start with the tie. The original rivalry in Pac-Man was between myself and a friend from Canada. So we made it friendly, a U.S. versus Canada. Now, if you think I have a look, okay, he wore a Canadian cape and he called himself Captain Canada. You weren't going to get me to do that. <laughs> Wearing a tie was the best I was going to do. So I did that, and it just sort of stuck. But as time grew, as popularity grew, as fun grew, I became obsessed with doing a little more and a little better and a little better and i found that people were coming to see me to say hi to ask questions for a handshake a selfie an autograph or just to you know talk about old days and i developed such a level of respect for that that i did i thought these people come all the way here to see me yeah i do i think i should dress my best and act my best and you know put together my best presentation and i actually have a 
an old, not friend, but somebody that I admired, who said, you have to give back the respect for those who come to see you. And so that's why you see me always looking like I just came out of the, you know, whatever, polished apartment. Um, you ought to see me when I don't look this way. It's probably humorous. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's talk about your iconic status in the world of video gaming. What are you most proud of, your accomplishments? Well, it's hard to argue with the fact that I did the perfect Pac-Man, and I went to Japan, and I was there. I was in the arcades and studios of Namco being honored in the presence of Masaya Nakamura, um, the father of Pac-Man. Most people call him the godfather of gaming. It's hard to argue that any kid in the world who ever played video games wouldn't have wanted that honor. So that's what sticks in my head the strongest. But it was the good fortune that came from the perfect Pac-Man that led to what I just told you, which is what caused movie companies and the media to start following us, to put together material, to create movies and create a legacy. And each time that's happened, I've simply tried to capitalize on it. Every time there's an event, I was there trying to capitalize on it. It wasn't going to happen if you didn't try to capitalize on it. So, you know, my line is always, you know, as you've heard from other people, you're going to fail 100% of the times you don't show up. So I just always show up and I always give it my best shot. What about Donkey Kong? Donkey Kong doing the first kill screen in 1982 and having it be, you know, beyond the year 2000 when a second one was done in a public venue, that was truly awesome. I think it was awesome because that was the subject of the movie King of Kong. So therefore, that was a catapult in itself. It's funny, I played Donkey Kong and I got good at it first back in the early 80s before Pac-Man. But I think it was the perfect Pac-Man that was the catalyst that put Donkey Kong forward afterwards. How do you feel about Tron when you first went in comparison to now as an adult? Well, as far as the movie, you could argue that it's good or bad or different. It's not supposed to be reality. It's supposed to be the farthest thing from. So it's kind of like watching a science fiction film. You have to appreciate what could be. Take Tron and put it in content. For example, back then there was a movie called Joysticks, mm -hmm. which was probably the most horrible, insulting movie there was. So Tron is a triple A plus. Now, time moves on, technology, um, you know, the art of making movies and graphics. So it's not fair to give a comparison. I still think it's beautiful, though. But I was going to say, it's hard to argue that it was not a movie ahead of its time. It, it was, absolutely. But the idea that Tron as a game led to the movie, Tron as a game led to a movie, led to the nationwide contest on Tron, I mean, that has to capture you if you're a gamer. That That is one of, if not the absolute original things that put competitive gaming forward. I walked into an arcade, and I said to the guy, I go, I got to have the world record on this game, Donkey Kong. I says, where do they have competitions on that? And he goes, they don't have competitions on that. And I go, why not? I go, you have competition on Tron. And he says, oh, but that's because of the movie. So you see how one led into the other. Well, the funny part was, I says, well, why can't there be competition on Donkey Kong? He goes, well, it's really popular, he said, but he said it's not like Pac-Man. Interesting. And I says, what do you mean it's not like Pac-Man? It's Donkey Kong. He says, yeah. He goes, 
but it's not like Pac-Man. I go, well, I'll just get the world record on Pac-Man, too. That was my wise guy back then. But again, it's the movie Tron that led to the nationwide contest in the Aladdin's Castle, which, again, sort of put co- the idea of competitive gaming on the map. If you were to put yourself in the shoes of Flynn, would you want to be inside of any video game? I would probably want to be anywhere except inside the video game. <laughs> so, But taking your question a little further, I had an arcade in Orlando in the airport. It was called the King of Kong Arcade. And the walls from floor to ceiling were Donkey Kong screens. And when I was in there, it was incredible. I felt like I was standing inside of a video game, and it made me think of the movie Tron, now that you bring that up. So, yeah, that was the environment I was trying to create. Of course, it was easy. I could walk out of the arcade. Uh, I guess in Tron movie, it wasn't so easy. (laughs) Any other final thoughts with regards to Tron and the world of video gaming, how it made the impact? Well, you know, my saying, never surrender, never. I'd say that describes Tron. Metal Jesus, what are some of your fond memories of Tron back when it was released? That's a trick question because I don't know if I remember going to see it at the theaters, but I definitely rented it and was blown away by it, especially uh, the tanks and the uh, the bike, the, 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 I forget what they call the light cycles, yeah. But also, to the arcade game and how neon the arcade game was. Um, you know, you walk up, it's kind of like almost like a uh, flight stick or something, you know. Uh, there's a couple of Tron games, but loved Tron. It, I mean, it just stood out at the time how amazing it was. And, you know, yeah, I, I loved it to death. And I should say also, too, I actually really liked the sequel a lot, despite the the whole fake, uh, you know, Flint character in the beginning, the CGI stuff. But once the movie gets rolling, I actually like the sequel a lot. I, I, it's pretty cool, so... So you got to figure, when this movie came out in 1982, which was an amazing year to be a kid, uh, this was a Disney movie. And previously, Disney was known for family fun movies, very frivolous movies, or animation movies that were hand-drawn. Except... Except for one of my favorite Disney movies, it's so bad it's good, The Black Hole. <laughs> and the black, it's funny you mention that because, or I, you know, you're talking about that because my wife and I, she, she doesn't get the, the whole obsession with the black hole. She thinks I'm stupid. But I was telling her, I'm like, she's never seen the end. I was like, no, it's messed up. <laughs> At the end, like, the bad guy goes to hell, you know, and the, the, the good guys, they go off into kind of like, it shows like this angel thing. It's like, it's pretty heavy for a Disney movie. You know, so to answer your question, it's like you're absolutely right. Disney is mostly known for that. This is the era where they were breaking away from that mold. And it was before I think they kind of figured out that hey, no, our bet we are best when we're doing family films. And now that now they get that right. But back then they were way more experimental. I think. You want to talk about experimental? This movie has more electronics, more video graphics in the movie than any other movie to this point. And why did it speak to us? as kids who were at that dawn of the video game 
age in that era. Well, I think it's very telling that the movie starts in an arcade, right? And so when you watch that movie, again, one of the really great things about watching it today is you see all these classic arcade machines because we as kids at 10 years old or 11 years old at the time, we were very obsessed with it. You know, the new shiny thing. And here's this movie that gets us, right? It starts in an arcade. We want to hang out at the arcade. And then it moves into this video game world. And at the time, it was so... At the time, it's funny because when I watched Tron originally, I didn't quite understand all the jargon or what the idea, the, the idea of networking and stuff was very, you know, it was very new. When I watch it today as an adult, I, I completely understand the plot. I get it. I understand all the nuances of it. And uh, it was just very forward thinking at the time, you know. So, uh, again, it's a movie that holds up, you know. It, it's, a, it's, it's an awesome movie. Yeah, the Starlog article talks about how cutting-edge the technology is, and no one has ever seen anything like this. And I, and I have to say, as a kid, it really did visually blow my oh, mind. Yeah. yeah, and it's funny, now we know as an adult that it actually wasn't as much CGI as we think it was, especially with the suits, yes. you know. But it was actually, but it, but it also it makes me appreciate it even more that they were able to pull it off. Because, it, again, when you talk about the sequel, if you watch the making of the sequel, they struggled to make the suits, that they had colored LEDs that would only last, I think, 10 minutes at a shot, and then they had to recharge them. So it's even hard to do today, you know. And so, But they were able to pull it off back then. Yep. So, yeah, it's a fantastic movie. David Warner, incredible villain. You know, this, oh, is, this right, is an, right, this right, is an yeah. epic actor yeah. being involved in this project. Yeah, that's true, is that, you know, again, they got great actors for it. And, uh, yeah, it, like I said, it just holds up. It, it's, it's a great movie. Do you remember the Tron action figures? Uh, I didn't own any, uh, but I do remember, remember one. Are they are clear? Yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's too funny. And you know, every once in a while, you'll see them at an expo, you know. And uh, yeah, I never owned them myself, but it was it's cool. You talked about the arcade game. I remember having the M Network arcade oh, okay. stick yeah. that that you could buy for the Atari. So let's just so reminisce. It was, it was a controller. It was a controller for the for the Atari. Oh, it was amazing because it was clear, and the cord could wrap around in the base. So you were actually, you, you can pull the cord in so the cord wasn't dangling. Yeah. So there were two games for the Atari 2600, right. Deadly Discs yeah. and Adventures of Tron. And, as you mentioned, there was the arcade game. Yeah. A lot of tie-ins. They were smart enough to realize that our market is going to be the video game nerds. Well, I think that's, that comes from from the fact that as a kid, I certainly was obsessed with Star Wars. And so at the time, you know, movies were like, oh, we can have a summer blockbuster, but there's all this merchandising that happens around it, and why not take advantage of it? Because I don't know about you, but I was obsessed with Star Wars figures. For I still kind of am. I just, (laughs) you know. So that makes sense that they would have tie-ins with the Atari or whatever. So that's cool. So tell our listeners about your video game room, and your incredible YouTube channel. So, um, yeah, I've been collecting for about 30 years, and I have about 1,100 square feet dedicated in my home just to a game room. So I have about 8,000 physical games, everything from the Atari all the way up to PlayStation 5, Xbox Series X. I have a a lot. And um, it's just a passion of mine. You know, I I love video games. I used to work in the video game industry. I used to work for Sierra Online. Back in the mid-90s. Yeah, and so my YouTube channel is all about retro video games, collecting, and, and also a little bit of music, too. I'm a musician and love collecting vinyl records. So, yeah, if people want to check me out, it's uh, at Metal Jesus Rocks. As always, we're going to end this 
podcast, we're talking about one of the advertisements found in Starlog magazine. Now, whenever we mention Starlog, most people think of science fiction, not realizing that by the mid-1980s, Starlog Press was a giant in the printing world. They were producing wrestling magazines. They were producing horror magazines like Fangoria. Everybody remembers Fangoria. A host of other specialty magazines. This advertisement says, Starlog Press, a summer of fun. So they have a magazine on Annie, and one on Star Trek 2, and one on Rocky 3. Very uh, different types of movies there. (laughs) Very much so, but they realized that they had the formula going. They knew about movies. They knew about fandom. They could pretty much collect information on anything popular and produce something of interest. Look, I love Nanny the movie. I thought it was wonderful. I saw it in the movie theaters. I saw Rocky Three in the movie theaters. And, obviously, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. So those are three big movies that they realized that there would be a fan base they advertise it in Starlog magazine because they figured Starlog readers would like reading about these movies as well. Yeah, I know. I remember Star Trek Two and Rocky Three. Um, I saw both of those in theaters, and they were awesome. And I really mean, of course, I like Star Trek. I I um I think I I do remember having that Star Trek Two magazine, and you know it, it's just great to have like a whole magazine just dedicated to this movie. And when you think about it. Annie did start out as a comic strip, and by the time Rocky Three came out, it was essentially a series of good guys versus bad guys. Thunderlips, what an amazing rival that was for Rocky. Mr. T as Clever Lang was incredible. Yeah, so I mean, I could see why Starlog would produce magazines beyond just what they were doing in the world of science fiction. You could send the way for these magazines. Three dollars each for Rocky and Annie, and three fifty for Star Trek. Include a dollar five postage and handling. So, what would you do? Would you send cash? Yeah, I would. Would you put a nickel in the envelope? <laughs> I, I mean, I did that sometimes when I was younger. I would, I would send <laughs> actual cash with change in an envelope. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome, awesome stuff from Starlog Magazine. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu.